we've been spending this semester at RUF trying to answer this question, which is, how is Jesus relevant to your life? And we've, we've gone about trying to answer that question by looking at the way that Jesus interacts with real people in the Bible, just in kind of one-on-one scenarios. And tonight, Jesus interacts with this person who's come to be known as the rich young ruler. Some of you may be familiar, some of you maybe not. And um, there's actually a lot of different ways to look at this passage. Uh, you, you could kind of focus in on this guy's mistaken ideas about his own goodness and how he's using religion just to kind of make himself feel good about himself. Uh, you could focus in on his idolatry of money and how he is, uh, how, how money has sort of like this unique power over human hearts. You could focus in on God's sort of like sovereign initiative and the way that he saves his people. And, and all of that would be great and biblical and profitable, but we're not going to look at any of that tonight. Uh, we are rather going to look at something that's going on a little bit more subtle. And, and the way that I look at it, it's kind of the, the baseline that's thumping underneath this whole thing. And it's the issue of authority. Or in other words, the question that this passage raises is, um, who is it that gets to rule my life? Who is it that gets to tell me what to do? So, so with those questions kind of the forefront of your mind, let's read this together and then uh, we'll talk about it, okay? This is God's word from Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man run, ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. At this the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. And Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Let me pray before we jump in and look at it together, okay? Father, um, we come before you not because that's just what you do before looking at a passage, but because we are desperate for your help. And in some ways, I feel even more in touch with uh, desperation as I look at this passage and have been unsettled by it all week. You know my fears, you know um, my sin, and I pray uh, that you would not hold my sin against these folks here tonight. 
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at the Virginia State flag, it's actually kind of interesting because there's this picture on it. And if you kind of, you can Google this and zero in and zoom in on this picture. But the picture is of um, a man who's on his back dead. And off to the side of uh, him on the ground is this crown. And, And towering over this man on his back is a woman with a spear in her hand and her foot on his chest. <laughs> so you kind of picture, okay, there's this dead king with the crown over, the woman, uh, foot on the chest, spear in hand, and in Latin, kind of uh, written around the seal, is sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. And so the image is very clear. Here in America, we do not like kings. And if you try to come over here and assert your kingship, this is what our women will do to you. (laughs) I mean, we just have this sort of uh, built into the DNA of our country. If this is just the cultural air that we breathe, I mean, we have a declaration of independence. We have declared independence from any sort of top-down authority just because somebody has a, a crown on his head. We don't care. We, we claim that we are independent from them. And what I want you to see is that this is just sort of the cultural air that we breathe, and this is the same impulse that's thumping through your bloodstream and mine. We do not like to be told what to do. But as we sort of introduce this idea of authority, what I want to do as we look at this passage together is just sort of draw, draw this idea out from three different angles. I want to look at the reality of Jesus' authority, the tyranny of rejecting Jesus' authority, and then the beauty of embracing it. Okay? So the reality of it, the tyranny of rejecting it, and the beauty of embracing it. Okay, so let's just look at these kind of one at a time. First angle, the reality of Jesus' authority. This story uh, comes in Mark chapter 10, and really one of Mark's main points as he writes his gospel is to get across this idea that Jesus has absolute authority. So let me just give you sort of a flyby over the gospel of Mark. Chapter 2 hits, and uh, Jesus makes this explicit point and demonstration that he has authority to forgive sin. Then chapter 4 comes, and we see that he has authority over creation as he speaks a word, and this like hurricane in the sea is instantly calmed down. In chapter 5, we see that he has authority over the forces of evil as he casts out a demon from this demon-possessed person. And then later in chapter 5, we see that he has authority over death itself as he raises this little girl from the dead. And actually, if you look at the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 11, uh, Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem and starts kicking over all the tables, and all the religious people come up to him and say, dude, by what authority are you doing this? This is just the way that Jesus behaves. What about the way that he speaks? Here's a couple of examples. You know, like uh, many times in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching, usually afterward everybody starts murmuring to themselves and they say, dude, he teaches as one who has authority. And you know what he says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Here's what he says. I'll just read it to you. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. He says, If you live by my words... You are like a man who builds his house on a rock. If you do not live by my words, you are a foolish man who builds his house on sand. 
don't say that unless you mean it. And if you are saying that, then we should probably talk afterward. But here's what I want you to see, is that Jesus speaks and he acts as one who seems to have ultimate authority. He just sort of has this unashamed expectation um, that he is the king of the universe and you should respond accordingly. That's just sort of his assumption, that he is the king and he demands your allegiance, and that is because he is, and he does demand your allegiance. Now, the first thing I want you to see tonight, so call this maybe point 1A, is that... Jesus has the right to rule every aspect of your life. I mean, he is uh, the king of the universe, and his word is intended to govern our lives. This is why, by the way, every single week we do this, and we, and we open up the Bible together. I mean, have you ever thought and wondered, okay, why do Christians do this? Just gather around this book and talk about it for a few minutes? Like, that's kind of weird. This is why we do that, because we believe that the Bible is God's word, and we want his word to govern and shape everything that we think about, everything that we do, everything that we think about from our vocation to the way that we study, to drinking, to sexuality, to our family, to everything. We want his word to shape everything. So I I know from the outset, some of you are like, um, one, I don't believe that Jesus has ultimate authority. And two, I don't believe that that book is God's word. Okay. I understand not everybody believes that. And I'm not going to try to defend that right now. If you have questions, you want to talk to me about it, I'd love to talk about it. But for right now, I just want to assume the Bible's assumption about itself, which is that it is God's word. And so if, you, if you're someone who kind of fits that description, what I'd like to invite you to do is just for the rest of our time is just critically engage this passage and see if it makes sense of your life. Okay? So let's just look at it together. Here's the basic story in Mark chapter 10. This dude walks up to Jesus, he's rich, he's young, he's influential, and he asks him a very loaded question, which is, how do I inherit eternal life? And here's what Jesus says. He goes, okay, uh, we'll keep all the commands of God. And because this guy is delusional <laughs> and thinks that he has, he's like, oh, I've done that. Like, check. Like, what else? Is that it? Like, I'm, I'm cool? And Jesus goes, oh, okay, no, no, no. Um, one more thing. Sell everything you have. Yeah, your clothes and your house and your animals, your business, everything, and give it to the poor, and then come on, follow me. And, of course, this guy's like, um, <laughs> I don't, I'm not interested anymore. So he kind of <laughs> walks away. Now, uh, quick disclaimer. I do not believe that Jesus is giving this guy the recipe for salvation, which would look like, hey, keep all the commands and then sell everything that you own. He is dealing with a specific individual, and Jesus knows that this guy's functional savior is money. And so he's pressing him on that. This is, this is kind of like um, the story of Abraham and Isaac. I know some of you are probably not familiar with that story, but in the Old Testament, God comes to this dude named Abraham and says, dude, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son to me. And Abraham is like, okay, and goes up on a mountain and pulls out a knife and is about to slit his son's throat. And God steps in and is like, okay, okay, okay. I know now who your real God is. I know that you trust me and that you love me. You don't need to do this. And so I think this is a similar sort of situation. I think if this guy were to say, okay, Jesus, I will liquidate all of my assets right now and come and follow you. I think Jesus would say something like, okay, now I know who your real God is. And you don't don't need to do that now. But that's not what this guy does. He says, I'm not interested in your opinion on this subject anymore. I want to live my life the way that I want to live it. 
I want to live my life the way that I want to live it. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is you. <laughs> and this is me. And so here's what I want you to see. Here's point 1B. Jesus has the right to rule every aspect of your life and you hate it. We cringe at this idea that Jesus speaks authoritatively over every area of our life and says, look, I designed you. I know what is best for you. This is the map. This is the game plan for you. And we hate this. And I do too. I, I hate the way that the Bible says I'm supposed to treat my wife. Because in Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, you are to love your wives as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Which that means he looks at me, Matt, and says, Matt, the way that you love your wife, Catherine, is to die to your agenda and sacrifice for her. And I hate that because I want her to die for me. I want to come home at the end of the day and sit down on the couch and put my feet up. And I want her to bring me a cold beer and have a hot meal ready for me and give me a foot massage. This is what I want. I want her to die for me. But the fact is, I cannot pick and choose when I'm dealing with ultimate authority. And the fact is, you can't either. I mean, we as modern progressive people, I know we love the idea about forgiveness and we love what Jesus says about forgiveness and about love and about justice for the poor. We love that stuff. You hate what Jesus says about alcohol. You hate what Jesus says about money. You hate what Jesus says about sex. I mean, the Bible looks at you and it says, do not get drunk. It says, and the implication is if if you are 21, you should not be drinking. You hate what the Bible says about giving away your money to the poor. You hate what the Bible says about not doing any sort of sexual activity with anybody other than your spouse. We hate this. But here's the thing, is that we do not have the right, we can't pick and choose when we're dealing with ultimate authority here. But I know some of you are going, okay, Matt, why not? What's the big deal? Well, I want to look next at, 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 this, at what the tyranny is, the tyranny that we experience when we choose to reject Jesus' ultimate authority. Okay? So let's look at this next thing, the tyranny of rejecting Jesus' authority. Over Christmas break, so I guess a few months ago now, one of our friends in Charlotte got this really itchy uh, like rash all over her body, and it was just like one of those things where like, it kept her up at night all night because she's like scratching, it's driving her crazy, and so she can't take it anymore, and, and she's trying to find her um, uh, primary care physician, and nobody's available, nobody can take her in, and so she's just like, okay, I give up. I'm going to go to one of those corner store urgent care doctor places. And so she goes in and the doctor guy um, is wearing reindeer antlers because it, um, it was Christmas season. And um, so this you know, urgent care doctor um, assesses her and he says that she has scabies. If you do not know what scabies are, let me bring you up to speed. They are little organisms called mites that burrow under your skin and, and, and plant and hatch eggs underneath your skin. And that's why it's so itchy and disgusting and, and drives you crazy. And so she's like, oh my gosh, like I've got disgusting parasites burrowing into my flesh right now. And... So she leaves a couple days later. She's you know, still itching, going crazy. She finally gets in and gets an appointment with a dermatologist. 
an educated, certified dermatologist with a degree on the wall. And um, uh, this guy, uh, you know, quickly assesses her and he goes, okay, yeah, that is definitely not scabies. Um, it's just a simple skin rash. It should go away in just a couple of days. And so uh, here's why I bring this up. Because the idea, this story is about authority and trust. Uh, who are you going to trust to assess your life and diagnose what is best for your life? Because here's the, here's the situation, is that you have the king of the universe looking at you and telling you how to order your life, and you're like, nah, I think I'll do my own thing. And, and what you're basically doing is you're, is you're looking at sort of the diagnosis of the certified professional and saying, I'm going to go with the diagnosis of the reindeer-wearing uh, you know, urgent care physician. I mean, that is you in that story. That is me. We are the urgent care doctor with the reindeer antlers. And we assess our life and we say, this looks better to me than the, the opinion and the diagnosis of the king, of the certified professional who knows what he is talking about. And the Bible says when we do this, this is not just foolish. This is not just stupid. This is sinful. Here's how the Bible describes and defines sin. Sin is man substituting himself for God. Man substituting himself in the place of God and saying, look, I know what is best for my life. I know I can call the shots. I know this better than you do. I'm not really interested in your authority on the issue. I'm interested in mine. Sin is man substituting himself for God. And when you do this, when I do this, when we reject Jesus' authority and we assert our own, you lose three things according to this passage. I just want to walk through these one at a time. First, you lose Jesus himself. Look at verse 22. I mean, this dude walked away. He is losing Jesus. I mean, can it get any more clear that they have now a very severed and broken relationship? He is losing Jesus. Here's the second thing he loses and that we lose. We lose the kingdom of God. Uh, I mean, Jesus makes this point over and over that this man is not in the kingdom. I mean, look at, look at 23 and 25, verse 23 and verse 25. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now look, I know Jesus is making this general point. And the general point is, if you worship money, you cannot worship God, and therefore you forfeited the kingdom. But he's making that general point based off of that particular dude, that dude walking away right there. And he's going, look, you see how that guy's walking away? He just shows you that he is not in the kingdom. He has forfeited. He's basically saying, I want to rule my life, not you. Now, what is the kingdom of God again? Because that's a nice fuzzy Bible word that people throw around and nobody really knows what it is. Here's what it basically means. It is, it is the people and the places where God rules as king. And people have submitted their wills to him. They have bowed the knee to his kingship. That's basically what that means. And, and the Bible uses all of this imagery to describe the people and the places where the kingdom of God is. And it's pictures of, of peace and of justice and of, of holistic flourishing and of healed relationships. I mean, the kingdom of God is the way that it is supposed to be. It, it is what you were designed for. It is, where you, it is what you long for. And this guy 
Look, look what happens in verse 22. It says, his face fell and he walked away sad. And I want you to see that that emotion is just a foretaste of what this guy is about to take on for the rest of his life because he is throwing away all that is good and all that is joyful. So he loses Jesus. He loses the kingdom. Here's the last thing he loses. Look, Jesus says, um, you know, it's impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom. And then the disciples start freaking out. And look in verse 26, they say, okay, who then can be saved? You see their assumption. They say, if Jesus says this guy has forfeited the kingdom, then that means he's forfeited salvation. This dude is lost. He is is throwing in the towel on salvation, which is this all-encompassing Bible word for everything that God has done for his people. Justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. He's throwing it all away. So I want you to see, this is what this guy is losing. Jesus, the kingdom and salvation itself, when he chooses to reject the authority of Jesus. This is terrible. This is suicide. I mean, this is self-destruction. And it's not just talking about eternity. It's talking about our lives right now. And you know exactly what this is like from your experience. How when you know what Jesus says about something and you do the opposite, you know how that destroys you. And that's because Jesus is not just giving out commands as busy work. He has given you a map of reality. And when you go against the grain of his design, when you break his commands, you break yourself. There is collateral damage that you take on yourself when you do that. So just a couple tangible examples. Jesus says for us to forgive those who hurt us, including our enemies. If you look at that command and say, forgive them, man, they just hurt me. I'm not, ready. I'm not interested in forgiving them. That's too costly. Uh, it, it, it hurts too much. Uh, I'm not interested in forgiveness. You know when you don't forgive how much more costly it is because you begin to develop that grudge. And that grudge is corrosive in your gut. And it just is like poison from the inside out and it makes you guarded and protective and controlling because you're never going to let that happen again. And in fact, if the relationship is still intact at all, uh, it is now marked by self-protection and bitterness and warfare. And you have to see, this is not the way to live. This is the way of death, not the way of life. Another example. The Bible says not to partake in any sort of sexual activity uh, outside of the context of marriage. And you know, when you go against that grain, you you know what that is like. The guilt and, and just sort of the loss of self and the shame and how that just opens up a floodgate of emotional addiction. And loneliness, I mean, that is not the way to live. That is death. You are taking on death yourself. So it's not just breaking these arbitrary, stupid, busy work rules. It is a map of reality that when you go against the grain, it is basically self-destruction. Now, I feel like I need to say this, and so I want to speak basically just to the people in the room who identify themselves as Christians. Because some of you in here tonight think that you are Christians, and you are not And what I mean by that is that you have been raised in the church and you come to RUF and you know all the right answers, but the fact is is that Jesus' words do not govern your life. And your life is marked by this perpetual rebellion against his authority. 
And I'm not just talking about how everybody struggles with sin, because that's a given. I'm talking about the willful, I know what Jesus says, and I don't give a rip attitude about it. And that should unsettle you. That should unsettle me. That should just leave everybody a little nervous because this passage looks at you and says, here is a guy who knows all the right answers, who thinks he is okay, and he is not. He has forfeited everything. I mean, Jesus looks at him and says, look, I know you've got money, but get rid of it. And, Jesus, and, and this guy says, I'm not interested in doing that. And he walks away from everything. I mean, what would happen if Jesus came to you and, and looked at you and said, you can never touch alcohol again? And you would say, I mean, would you say, I mean, what would your answer be? Would it be, I want to take that over you. I would rather have a drink than give everything up for you. And and I'm not just, uh, uh, please don't hear me saying that all sin is regulated to drinking and sex. Sin is much bigger than those two things. And the only reason I'm highlighting those two things is because, let's be honest, that is the world we live in as college students. And also hear me say this, no, you are not saved by your obedience. Your obedience is the evidence that you are, in fact, saved. But the question is, is there something that you can point to and say, that right there, I think, is the proof. That's the fruit of God doing something in me. And so the question I just want to leave you with on this point before we move on is this. Who is ruling your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? Because if it is you, then the world is worse because of it. And you are worse because of it. And I am too. And we disintegrate together. You do not want me being your RUF pastor if I do what I want to do. Trust me. My wife does not want me as her husband if I just do whatever I want to do. That's the question. Who is the authority in your life? Does God have the power to contradict you? Now, if we just stopped right here, we would all be Pharisees. And we'd say, oh my goodness, let's go out and get busy and start being obedient or else we're going to lose everything and Jesus is going to smack us. And um, our motivation for obedience would just be guilt and it would just be fear of punishment. And that's not the Bible's motive for why God wants to follow you, uh, for, for you to follow him. God never wants to merely relate to you as a king relates to his subject, although that dynamic is definitely there. God wants to relate to you and to me as a husband relates to a bride. And so how I want to close is I want you to look at the beauty of embracing Jesus' authority. We looked at the reality of it. We looked at the tyranny of rejecting it. But what happens if you embrace it? Let's look at the beauty of this. Jesus invites this man to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus never makes demands on people that he himself has not done. Because the fact of the matter is, even though he's looking at this dude and saying, look, if you give up everything, you get me. The reality is Jesus has given up everything to get him and to get you and to get me. I mean, Jesus is rich and was rich in heaven, and he left the glory of heaven and the presence with the Father to become poor and homeless on this earth. And what he does is he comes and he takes all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our rebellion, and he stands underneath the judgment of God for you and for me. He takes our place. And so if you hear me saying anything tonight, hear me saying this. 
Sin is man substituting himself for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for man. Salvation is God stepping in and substituting himself for you, for me, for his enemies. And look at how beautiful this is. When you trust in Jesus, when you link into that good work, what that means is that no matter how many times you fail him, he will never make you pay for it. He will never make you pay for it. Even when you come back to him with all of your shame, you say, oh, I screwed up again. I blew it. I totally messed up. He does not wait there with his arms crossed, waiting to give you the silent treatment and to make you feel guilty for what you've done. He runs towards you and embraces you with this loving and gracious welcome. And he says, look, you have trusted in Jesus, right? Okay, well, you have an advocate here. He has paid for it. I have nothing but love for you. I have nothing but love for you. And so it does not matter when you blow it. I mean, Thomas says this every single week. Thomas is our announcement guy. And you need to pound this into your head that you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. You can never blow it so big that you are beyond the reach of his grace when you come back to him in faith and in repentance. And so the invitation is for you to repent Now, I know, let's just stop right there because some of you are like, I hate that word. And the reason we have bad connotations of that word is because those guys that come out on Sanford Mall with their signs that say, repent, and they scream at you. (laughs) And you should have a bad connotation of that, uh, that word because of that, because that's terrible. But that's not what the Bible intends to get across with that word. That word basically means turning from your sin and returning into God's arms. That's it. Coming back home. Coming back to God, not with a resolution to get better, not with more promises that you're going to do this and this and this now. It is simply coming in with all of your shame and with all of your guilt and having him warmly embrace you with his gracious welcome. That is what it means. You know, Martin Luther, who's the guy that, you know, nailed up the 95 theses. You know the first thesis is of those 95? Let me just read it. It's amazing. He says, when our... Lord and Master said, repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And here's what he's getting at. He's saying, you never just repent once as a Christian. It is the thing that marks your entire life. Meaning that if you are a Christian, you see your sin and you hate it and you run back into Jesus's arms continually over and over and over because you're sinning over and over and over as well. And it's just this constant running back into his arms over and over and letting him embrace you and receive you over and over again. That is the lifestyle of a Christian. It is marked by struggle and by hatred of sin and by warfare. And so no, of course, of course the the reality is that we do not perfectly obey. Of course not. We screw it up all the time. But the way that it looks like that, this is, we run back to God and we say, oh, I did it again. I, I blew it. I, I've totally made a mess of my life. And you let him just warmly embrace you and assure you that the gospel is true and that your guilt is taken care of. And then we leave and then, and then we, now we hate sin in a deeper way, but now we struggle, but we still want it. But, you know, we hate it. We still want it, but we hate it. And then sometimes we give into it and we blow it and we come back to God again and allow this whole process to happen over and over again where he just lets the grace begin to keep soaking through our soul. And now, when that happens, when that whole cycle begins to happen over and over and over, you begin to hate sin more and more. And now, it is not 
out of fear of punishment or out of guilt that we try to follow Jesus' authority. It is by utter gratitude for his grace to us that we will not presume on his grace any longer. We will not go the way of death any longer because this is so much better. It's so much more beautiful. You know, there is this um, line from the song in um, one of the songs that uh, Mumford and Sons sings. And um, if you don't have that album, shame on you. But um, the song is Roll Away Your Stone. Here's the line. It is not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with a restart. And that is it. It is not that long walk home where you know you're walking back home and you're feeling the shame and you're feeling the guilt and you're feeling the fear of punishment that is coming. That will never change your heart. That will never make you hate sin. That will never make you change. It is the welcome you receive that does it. It is when you experience his grace and you realize, are you serious? That is amazing and mind-boggling that you would even welcome and entertain accepting me for everything that I've done. And then when that begins to sink into your bloodstream, you now turn and say, okay, I want to live in a way that pleases him. You see how beautiful that is? No matter how many times you fail him, he will never make you pay for it because Jesus paid for it for you. Now let me wrap up here. Uh, I heard the story recently, and honestly, I don't know how true it is because stories like this are just kind of hard to verify. But um, there's this man named Robert Robinson who was a uh, Baptist minister in England in the 1700s. And uh, although much of his life was spent sort of in gospel ministry, what he did was he slowly began to pull away from Jesus. And and he just eventually got to a point where he gave in to all of his desires and all of his lusts and all of his cravings. And he went to the one place where he knew he could do whatever he wanted to and be whoever he wanted to. And so he went to Paris. And uh, in Paris, uh, after sort of this roller coaster of sort of frivolous and promiscuous and wild living. Uh, I, I don't know how long he was there, but as the legend goes, he's riding in this stagecoach with this woman. And uh, different stories conflict. Some people say she was a prostitute. Some people say she was just a friend. And she's humming the words, or she's humming the tune to the song, uh, to the hymn, Come Thou Fount, which we're actually about to sing here in a second. And and so the first verse of this uh, uh, song goes, you know, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. So she's humming this song, and um, she asks him what he thinks about it. And he just breaks down. And he starts crying, and he's bawling, and he says... I wrote that. That is my hymn. I am the sad and unhappy man who wrote that hymn so many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy those feelings again. And she looks at him in the face and says, It is not too late. The streams of mercy still flow, and they flow through Paris tonight for you. And so Robert Robinson repented. And he plunged into those streams of mercy. He left Paris, he went back to England, and he picked up where he left off with gospel ministry. 
Sin is man substituting himself for God, and salvation is God substituting himself for man. So the question that I want to leave you with tonight is this. Are you going to continue to call the shots of your own life, knowing that it leads you nowhere but death? Or are you going to plunge into his streams of mercy and allow that grace to sink in where you now live a life that says, I want to bow the knee continually to your authority? And so the question is, is the language of your heart, Lord, thy will be done? Or is it, Lord, my will be done? That's the question that I want us to sit on tonight. So let me pray. Father, I pray that you would make the beauty of your kingship so overwhelming and so astounding to us that we would readily run and plunge ourselves into these streams of mercy that never cease. And that amazing grace would transform us from the inside out. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart and a love to follow you and to obey you and to bow our knee in every area of our life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.